Yates on Sunday. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. It's my great pleasure to welcome the Queen of Ireland. Well, sort of. He's a Ballinrobe boy. He has a great story to tell. And you probably know him best as Panty Blist. Rory O'Neill, you're most welcome. Thank you, It's Ireland. a Sunday. Have you been to Mass this morning? <laughs> if I told you I've been to Mass and my mother was listening, she'd keel over. No, I haven't been to Mass in years apart from weddings and funerals. And the other religion for Mayo people? Are you going to Croker today? Do you follow the, the about, folly of the Mayo I'm Red about to admit something that will have the rest of Mayo howling. Um, I knew that you were going to ask me something and I knew there was something about Mayo and football. So I had to get onto my sibling WhatsApp and say... Now is, is Mayo, oh, what's is, the match? I was, I was like, <laughs> are Mayo in the All Ireland final today, and who are they playing? I was like, no. Okay, <laughs> okay. So you don't do church, and you don't do Mayo football. No, no, no. Okay, that's a great start. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so we have a shared past, and it is that back in 1970, being from Enniscorthy, my father had a passion for fishing, and his best friend, his solicitor Des McAvoy, had a place over near Kong yeah. and he was touring around and he loved the fly fishing and he bought for 500 quid a place in the back hole of nowhere the arsehole of Mayo Gortmore so every childhood since I was 10 I have spent in Mayo and I loved it and I brought my own kids there so Growing up in Ballinrobe... Wait, you're down in Turmahidi now, to this day. Uh, well, I'm sorry, my sisters now have it and oh. so on. It's actually a bit too run down for me. Oh. I'm going to go for one of the posher <laughs> self-rentals over there. But I love the area and have a deep affinity to it. My question is, Ballinrobe, how far have you left it behind? Is it a happy nostalgia? Is there resentment? What's your feeling about the Mayo and Ballina area, yeah. uh, area? Well, there's no resentment or anything. Um... I mean, I do have a slightly distant relationship with it because I went off to boarding school when I was 12 and, you know, I have never really lived there since then. And of course, when I was sort of the awkward teenager and all of that, I definitely felt, you know, square peg in a round hole when I'd be in Ballon Robe. But that was all a long time ago. And, you know, I it's a great little town and um, my family are all still there. And in a weird way, it's still home to me, you know, because that's where my family is and all of that. Would you so, go you know, back I, once a year or would you go back at Christmas oh, I do, or anything like, every like Christmas, that? Every Christmas. Yes. You know, yeah, Hail Rain or Shine, I'm down there for Christmas. You know, I know, I know there are sort of family events and you know, there's always something. There's a, an anniversary or a big birthday or something, you know. So what's the best thing and the worst thing about Mayo and Ballinrobe and rural Ireland as you remember it? Well, I would say, like, I think, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're Irish and you're not from, you know, a, a western county or Dublin, you might as well give up. All those middle ones and everything. Who cares about Mullingar and all of that? You need to be from Kerry, Mayo, Donegal or Dublin as far as I'm concerned. To be a, pro- <laughs> to be a proper bogger, is it? Or yeah, to, be, to yeah, be a coachy yeah. or what? Like if you're going to be from Ireland, you need to be from one that's a wild Atlantic west, you know, with the wind blowing in off the yes. Atlantic and pegs. Outside and toilets and yeah. all that. <laughs> or be from Dublin, you know, but you know, don't be from, you know, bleeding middle of the road Wicklow or Wexford, okay. you know. Okay, so that's the best bit of it. <laughs> yeah. There's bragging rights. What's the, what's the worst thing about it? Well, you know... Nowadays, I don't know that there is one. When I was a kid, what, what was bad about it was it was so far away from anywhere. You know, even going up to you know, visit Granny in Dublin or something just seemed like such an effort and everything. Whereas nowadays, you know, is there really, I don't, I don't know that there is a bad thing about it, you know, necessarily. 
And and you know, I think you know you, Dubliners still have this weird idea that you know, you know, culties are are weird and funny. But you know, but uh, is there not a thing that they're invasive? If you live in any part of a city, be it in Cork or yeah. Limerick or whatever, your apartment neighbour doesn't really care about you. Down the country, they want to know not only about you and your breed seed generation, but what you had for your breakfast. Yeah, but I don't. But I think that's a, an unfair thing because, for example, I live in a small apartment building and I know all my neighbours. And we all get on fine and we have our little meetings when things need to be sorted out or whatever. So I don't think it's, you know, living in Dublin does not so mean So there's no stereotype for you? I, I don't think so. And, you know, here, here's a weird thing. I was reading you know, the terrible story there recently, you know, about that guy who, who murdered the two old brothers. And, and one of the tiny little details of the story that really struck me was how every morning this woman who used to look after them would knock on the door and she'd say, are you ready to rock and roll? And that really just said to me, that is what is really great about a small town. And there was another detail where the, the barman used to bring over cups of tea every night across the road from the bar over to the two alfellas and leave it, on, leave it on their windowsill. And I was thinking, you know, that's the kind of thing, you know, that small towns are so brilliant at. Yeah. A sense of community. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, you went to boarding school. Is it Balbriggan, Gormanstown? Gormanston. Okay. In a sentence, good, bad? Indifferent. Is what okay. I would say. Like, you know, I hated it because... You weren't into sport or... Yeah, I wasn't into sport and all that. And in the, and it's a very... Tra- well, it was. It's not really there anymore. But it was a very traditional, you know, GAA, all of that thing. And I hated it because, you know, there was no freedom and you were kind of locked in. And there was Franciscans, you know, all the stuff that was getting on my goat at an early age. But, you know, I was never the homesick type... I got on fine with the bad boys and I got on fine with the nerds. You know, so I didn't have a bad time of it. You weren't bullied or anything No, but I could see other boys who were horribly bullied and should never have been sent to boarding school. And was it co-ed? No, no, it was all boys, yeah. Okay, okay. And But but a happy family, the O'Neill family, big crowd, happy crowd. Absolutely, big noisy, happy family, yeah. But Ireland wasn't big enough for you. You went to art college as a proper hipster in Dunleary. Which was tick, tick, tick. And then you decided to travel the world and ended up in Japan. Yeah, well, I think, you know, every Irish young person goes off, don't they? Um, which I think is a good thing. And yeah, I, well, especially, I, no, I don't want to oversell it, but I think definitely being queer was a lot to do with it because I wanted to go off and find, you know, this kind of queer world that I'd read about in books and all that stuff. And, and there wasn't any of that in Dublin in the 1980s, you know. You would, not, you would not come out in Dublin in the 1980s? Oh, no, I had. But I came out and found out that there was, you know, not very many of us. Yeah. And, um, you know, Dublin at that time was really sort of grey and depressed and it was all about, you know, long hair. Well, there was a deep recession in the 80s yeah. as well. Yeah. So it was pretty grim. Did you find the whole kind of repressive regime that the Catholic Church and all that, like Garrett's constitutional crusade really kicked into the 80s yeah. where you were really fighting about contraception, divorce. Yeah. Like youngsters today forget that these things just didn't evolve. They had oh, yeah, to be yeah. fought tooth and nail. Did you feel that repression? Oh, absolutely I did. I mean, I was looking wistfully, you know, I'd be reading all these magazines, you know, from London or whatever and, and just thinking, my God, you know, why am I stuck in this backwater here, you know, where we were... Like, you know, I, I'm just old enough to remember the giant fuss when Virgin Megastore started to sell condoms. You know, like, it was such, you know, so depressing and grey. And and at that time, I thought I'd never live here. You know, I thought there's no way I'm ever going to live in this country. I'm getting out and I'm never coming back. So it's as, you know, as much a surprise to me as it is to my mother or whatever that I'm here now all these years Okay, there. so you took off not knowing where you'd go. Why Japan? Five years was it you're in Japan? Yeah, well, I, I read this, there's a travel writer called Paul Theroux and um, he wrote a book about train journeys in China and I started, I read that book and 
I don't know why, I just became sort of obsessed with it. And I had this good girlfriend at the time, and she was the same. She had itchy feet, and she read the same book, and we were like, let's try and do that. So, you know, we set off, you know, to try and get the Trans-Siberian Express. And this is just before the Soviet Union collapsed and all that. So just getting, you know, to Moscow and getting the Trans-Siberian Express, that was a huge... How did you finance all this? Well, you didn't really need much money, uh, you know... We, we both worked in a restaurant for, after we finished college for a year, took that money and off we went. But it was pre-internet and all that. So, you know, nowadays, if you wanted to do something, you'd go online and there'd be a million forums telling you how to do that. And, you know, we had no idea. It was all just going off into the dark. But, you know, when you're 20 or 21 or whatever it was, you know, you're Were you fearless. pretty wild? Um, so I you, you always... were, let me change that. <laughs> you were totally wild. You know, I wasn't the kind of person who's getting into loads of trouble or anything. I was never that. But you were into drugs. Well, I wouldn't say that. What I say is, I, well, I was open to every experience. And I no, think in I... some ways I still am. So I tried everything. Are I... you not taking shed loads of drugs? I wasn't taking shed loads of drugs. I mean, there was definitely a period in the early 90s with everybody else my age where I was raving and taking ecstasy and, you know, going, you know, loving off it. to race and loving every moment of it. What I am is, and I've always been like, I want to try everything. And I don't trust other people telling me this is good and this is bad. I want to try it for myself. And so I've always been very open to all that stuff. So yes, through my 20s, I tried every single thing that anybody ever offered me. So when did you commercialize and invent the Drag Act? And it started off as, I think, Letitia or Latisha, and it ended up as Panty, which sounds like knickers. To explain all that. I know, and people still to this day, just even the other day, somebody on Twitter is, you know, attacking me and saying, how can you call yourself an offensive name like that? I, well, see, here's what's so sweet about it. I started doing drag because it was just fun and, you know, wild, and essentially you were making a few quid to be the life and soul of the party and get drunk in nightclubs, like what 20-whatever-year-old wouldn't want that job. But I chose the name Letitia in the beginning because it was the name of one of our pet sheep. <laughs> and Letitia was the name of one of the lambs. So it was actually a sweet little nod back to Ballon Robe and, you know, my, my okay. life. And, but I had a double act in Japan with an American drag queen who was called Lurleen after the governor of Alabama or Georgia, I think, Governor of Georgia, Lurleen Wallace. So it was Letitia and Lurleen. But it, of course, it turns out that they are just awful names to have if you're trying to make a living in Japan because Japanese language doesn't have the L sound or the R sound. So they can't hear any difference between L and R. So they could never remember our names. You know, too many L's and R's involved. So we thought, OK, well, we'll choose like a group name. That will sound cutesy because, you know, that's very Japanese culture. They love the cutesy kind of things. And we thought we'd pick a name that was English because that was kind of our USP, you know, our unique mm-hmm. selling point as we were foreign. But that had to be words that Japanese people understood and would remember easily. So we chose the name Candy Panty because they use the, na- the word candy and they use the word panty in Japan. So Candy Panty, it sounds cute. It's silly. It's easy to remember if you're Japanese. So, but that was just meant to be our group name and we were still meant to be Lurlina Letitia. But as it happened, then they just started calling us Candy and Panty and they're just nicknames that stuck. And when did it kind of cha-ching, I can monetize this? You know, to be honest, for years, I was doing it and, and earning some money and able to pay the rent and all. But I never really thought for 25 years or something that I could actually make a whole life career because at the time... That wasn't possible or didn't seem feasible. People didn't make, you know, full long livings out of drag or whatever. It always just felt like something fun that I was doing that was paying the rent. But I always thought in five or ten years I'd be doing something else. And that'll be a couple of thousand yen. You had no difficulty asking for money for what you did. Like when it was going well, when it was in demand. Yeah, no, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, So really you're just an entrepreneur in drag. Where I'm going with this is really... This whole panty thing is a disguise for the fact that you're a businessman. 
You're an entrepreneur. You're well, an opportunist. I'm not a classic entrepreneur in that, you know, I'm, I'm bad at the figures and all that stuff. But what I am is I'm a self-starter. And I think in order to be a drag queen, you have to be because you have to make all your own opportunities. It's not like a, you know, a lot of careers where there's some sort of ladder, you know. Yeah. You have to, yeah. But make it wasn't just a kind of fetish that you were kind of really enjoying. You actually commercialized it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I got into it because it was fun and stupid. And then I found, oh, I can also make some money at it. And, and I, I'm not particularly driven by, you know, making money or wanting to be rich or anything. So just making a little, or, you know, was enough for me. To this day? Well, obviously, as I got older, I wanted more of the creature comforts. And then as it became more possible, to, you know, I found more opportunities to make a bit more money. I took them, of course. Okay. Um, yeah. one, of my, one of my saddest experience was my first big job in politics was to be opposition spokesperson for health in 1989. Uh-huh. Alan Jukes was leader. And I encountered the whole HIV AIDS thing. Mm. I went to fundraiser, went to launches, and I met people who were dying yeah. of AIDS. Some of them had got through blood transfusions, yeah. some had got through drugs, and some of them were in the gay community. Yeah. And the sadness of something that will always live with me. You got your diagnosis when? 95. Tell us about that. I was in 95, and like it, it was a shock. I wasn't expecting it. And, of course, I'm of the age, you know, when I was a teenager, they had the ads on the TV with the tombstones and all that. And I had known a lot of people who had died, and I'd been to a lot of AIDS funerals, you know. So I was under absolutely no illusions what it meant. But on the other hand... Was it in Ireland you got the diagnosis? Yes. James's yeah. Hospital? I had just come back the, from Japan, yeah. And you went to James to get a checkup? No, I went to my local GP. Okay. And um, I was feeling a little unwell or something, and, and he did some, you know, basic tests and then he sort of said oh well let's test for lots of things um, and he said you know one of the possible explanations to this is an HIV but you know he sort of threw that in casually as one of many things and then um, what I always remember is he called me you know when the results are back and he asked me to come in at 5pm to his office and I didn't know at the time but you know, I in retrospect, I now know that if a doctor ever asks you to come in at 5 p.m., it's not a good that's sign. Around. Yes, he wanted, he didn't want people sitting outside waiting while he was about to tell me this terrible thing. Um, so he basically sat me down and um, told me, and, you know, weirdly, my memory of it is feeling more sorry for him than for me because I could see how uncomfortable he was and, you know, and at the time... And it was, was it pretty... HIV positive just or was it full-blown AIDS? HIV positive, yeah. Okay, so that's not too bad. No, but at the time... That yeah. was as bad as it gets, you know, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, so, um. And were you a drama queen about it? Did you tell everyone I'm going to die or what way were you? Were you stoical about it or what was your um, attitude? I, I was pretty stoic about it, but what I wasn't about it was I wasn't, I didn't keep it a secret. Um, at the time, everybody kept that a secret because um, there's huge fear and stigma around it and everything. And I didn't keep it a secret, not really out of any sort of, you know, bravery or anything but just because I have a big mouth and I just can't keep these things you know to myself um, Did it inhibit the number of potential partners you might have? Oh for sure yeah even to this day I, I think it does you know still like it's amazing to me especially the people in the gay community would still not be right up to date with the you know the facts and everything but it, there's still a lot of ignorance around it so people still to this day It are, is no longer thankfully a death sentence so how do you fi- how did you find the treatment and when did you realise and say shucks I can live with this? Yeah, because looking back, I was really lucky to be diagnosed in 95 because so when I when he told me, I thought, right, that's it. And they were telling me then, he, you know, my very first visit a day or two later to St. James's to the HIV clinic, they were basically saying, right, 
you know, you've got five to ten years, you know, um, and here's what, you know, you're going to get a blanket allowance and here's how you apply for the dole. And, you know, they were because they were just assuming I was going to have to give up work and I was going to be sick and all that. And that was all pretty grim and hard to deal with, you know, because I felt fine at the time. And I can sort of remember they're explaining all this stuff to me and I'm like, you've made a mistake. You know, I'm fine. Um, but were I, you ever really sick? No. And um, because I Pneumonia was... or anything like that? No, no, no. no. Um, I've always been healthy as a horse. But I was really lucky because it was around that time that they started to make the first real, you know, advances in treatment. So when I first started, they, they put me on treatment and I, you know, I got AZT. They gave me AZT, which was at the time, you know, the big drug. It was very expensive, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. and, and also really hard to take, like really hard on your system. But... In my mind, it's like one of the very first visits. I remember the doctor saying, "Now there, there's this new stuff that's coming on stream, and it, you know, you know, there's it seems there's hope, yeah, that, yeah." And and so I I feel like my sort of from the day I was diagnosed it was always just slightly getting better, getting better, getting better. Now there was a f- few years where I was taking thirty pills a day, and you know, I was walking around, you know, rattling, you know, with these pill boxes and. A and walking pharmacy. Yeah. yeah. And so today, today you take one or two tablets a day. And I take one cool. tablet every morning, and I get on with it. And you so have it's no incredible the difference. Yeah. Fantastic. Telling your family and those closest to you that you were HIV positive, yeah. did they think it was a death sentence? And how did you tell them? Was that even harder than coming out? Yeah, it was because um, nobody wants to tell your parents you that know, you've been risque, maybe. Well, the, 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 of course, on top of everything else, is that sort of, you can't help but sort of take on some of the sort of stigma and, you know, ickiness, you know, that people put onto it. So that added a bit to it. But, um, but you know, my parents, you know, they already knew everything else about me. So that wasn't so much of it. But at the time, what you were basically telling them was, I'm going to die before you. And nobody wants to tell your parents that. Mm. So that was hard. But I didn't tell my parents immediately. I waited like a year until I really had it in my own head sorted out and, you know, understood exactly what was going on. And, and and by that stage, I was sort of aware, you know, that there were these kind of new treatments arriving. And, then, and so I was able to present it with some bit of hope yeah. in it, sort of. And uh, and luckily, that turned out not to be a lie. I mean, I kind of was lying at the time. The, the tide was turning. It was, it, it yeah. was And that was, that was good. Okay, let's get into the, the regular LGBT agenda. Did the, the, did the equality referendum define your life? No, no. I mean, it was, clearly it was a big thing in my life. Um, well, Pantygate, Noble Call, all were around that. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, but what I would say is, um, you know, from the outside, look at it, it might seem it was a big... But to me, I was just plodding along doing my thing. and all, It, was it wasn't this thing. sort of iconic moment in your life where you were catapulted to the top of the national agenda? There was definitely a bit of that. But, but like I said, I was still plodding along and doing this stupid show the next night and all that stuff. So it was just another thing. Now, of course, in, in retrospect, I can look at it and I can sort of see, God, that did have a big you know, effect on my life. But at the time, I was just getting on with it. And at the time, I was, you know, I was annoyed <laughs> about everything that was going on. And, and annoyance is a great sort of motivator and just, you know, puts you on. I read, I read uh, this morning Noble Call. And there's a particular line about how you're standing at the bus stop mm. and you repeat yeah. how... Uh, you actually put it better than I can recall. It's something like that you're ashamed at yourself at trying to be not too camp. Yeah. You know, yeah, not too yeah, gay. Yeah. And and that that was a sad reflection on you rather than the stereotyped yeah. homophobic uh, thing. Was that something that just 
came in a eureka moment or that you actually felt that way for years? Because oh, no. you did anecdote after anecdote of the resentment of the homophobic attitudes. Oh yeah, no, I felt that for years. I mean, it, used to, I mean, it honestly did annoy me that, that it affected me in, in that way. Because, you know, I think um, every young gay boy or whatever has these moments where they're trying to not seem so gay or, you know, or, or it might be a tiny thing. Somebody's, you know, some bloke in class says, slags you for your wrist being a bit limp and you realise oh, my wrist was a bit limp there and it, it really starts to bother you and then but the, it bothering me really you're not, bothered you're me you're not proud well well, I am now but you know when you're younger it's hard to okay. and even as you get old, when you're older and you think I'm over all of that these things it turns out are really deeply ingrained you know and so yeah no I, I wanted to be totally over all that and not give a crap what anybody else thought but it's hard not to give a crap what everybody else thinks. And does that homophobic bullshit still happen to you? It, oh, of course it does. Yeah, yeah, of course it does. Now, does it? Now, much less, or certainly it affects like what me What type much of less. people? I can't imagine an octogenarian saying, oh, you queer. You know what I mean? Who, who would do that? You oh, well, know? it's, you know, listen, it has, has it improved. It has a lot. You know, it's improved you know, vastly since I was, you know, 20 or whatever. Um, but of course it still happens. And now it's usually, you know, whatever, it's some throwaway comment on but the But it's not a novelty kind of variety. Is the spice oh, it is to me almost. actually kind of almost a, yeah. a badge of honour. It is to me now, but I'm 48, you know. Yeah. But if I was 22, I don't know if I w- would feel that way about it. Okay. You know. Um, Do you think coming out for young gays is harder, the same or easier? I think it's definitely easier. I'm not going to say it's easy because everybody's circumstance is different. But is it easier? Yeah. And you can even see that, like, you know, young gays bring their mother into panty bars sometimes and this kind of stuff. We would never have done, you know. You Surely know, like, that's good on the mothers. Oh, it's great for everybody. You know, I think, you know, yeah, yeah no, I think it's great. I, I love no, it. Because I've noticed you made a few comments about young gays. You've said kind of like two words that, that stick in my mind. One was apathy and one was atrophy. Yeah. Which I had to check up with waste <laughs> away. I mean, like the fact of the matter is, you do have a bit of an issue about younger gays, do you? Well, I I used to have it. I I'm I'm I'd be interested. You're over, you are you? Where you read that? Um, because I used to have a much bigger attitude about it. Um, because there was a, a time, sort of before the marriage equality referendum stuff, um, where I really did feel that younger gays were very apathetic, that they'd gotten enough comfortable enough. You know, to be they had to a soft to... ride on kind of autopilot exactly, where yeah. those people like David Norris and yourself did the hard yards. Yeah, no, I, I, I used to really feel that. And when the marriage equality stuff was, you know, early, there was very few young people turning up to the demonstrations and all of that. And I felt, yeah, that they were apathetic and that they were just happy but enough to be going to But surely it was a reflection on the normality and... of it. Well, it was, yeah. But it still annoyed me. Now, I have to say that I had to eat my words eventually because eventually when the referendum really got going, they really got on board and and got into it. And so, you know, I I misread them. They were just being young. So speaking of young gays, what for you is the unfinished business of the LGBT agenda? Well, it depends on where you're looking at it from because for me personally what is, is is I want... There are other parts of the world where it is absolutely horrifying to be queer. And I get to see a lot of that nowadays because I do a lot of traveling around and I've been doing quite a bit with Irish aid recently where I go into other countries to see what they're doing and to sort of bring some attention to it. And, um, you know, if you're in somewhere like Sarajevo or Uganda or, you know, South Africa, it is terrifying to be gay. People are being murdered every day. Lesbians are being beaten to death in the streets every day. And... 
part of the reason why I then go around to these places is to tell Ireland's story. Because let's say you are a young lesbian in Sarajevo, you can feel like that nothing's ever going to change, that you're always going to be, you know, in fear of your life. You're going to have to leave your country to, if you're going to want to so live in Ireland. So what's your message to them? Well, my message is that actually change is possible and look at how, look at Ireland. Politicisation? Is that your message? Well, it, the, the, the message is that you know everyone's going to need to work hard, but that change really and truly is possible and actually change is possible in a remarkably short period of time. Because, you know, I tell them like when I was, you know, your age, you know, how grim it was <laughs> to be queer here. And and look at it now, you know, the first country in the world to bring it in through popular vote. So, you know, change really is possible. So I, so Ireland's story, I think, is a sort of a, it's a lovely story to be able to go and tell in these places. It's sort of like a... And because it involves the people hope, rather of, than yeah. just legislators. Exactly, yeah. Turning to the north, though, there's a ruling yeah. this week yes. which disallows equality marriage. What's your feeling about that? I mean, it's quite close to home. I mean, is, the judge yeah. said it's a matter for the politicians, <clears throat> not the judiciary, to decide it. One can sort of understand that. Yeah. Do you think the DUP and others will shift? Because it seems inevitable to me they will. Well, what is inevitable is that marriage equality is coming to Northern Ireland. It just is, because they're in a really untenable position at the moment, um, where you know the other parts of these islands um, have marriage equality, and where... Um, you know, like a, a gay couple is married in Scotland and then they hop on the ferry to Belfast and suddenly they're not married. Or, you know, you know, a gay couple in Belfast can drive down to Dundalk and get married and go back and they're not married. Like, it's ridiculous. So it's Do you think the DUP are homophobic? Yes, absolutely, I do. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I do. Um, but I, but can they hold out? No, they can't because you know poll after poll has shown that the people of Northern Ireland believe in marriage equality. The people who are voting for the DUP have them. You know, have no truck with the DUP's stance on marriage equality either. They're voting for the DUP for totally other reasons because they don't feel they have anybody else to vote for. So it's an untenable situation. It can't last forever. In fact, I think if it you know if it comes up again, I don't think the DUP has the numbers now to even you know use the veto. So. The sooner the better. Now, it's inevitable. I'm Does disappointed it... with the judgment you know, earlier this week, and I happen to know the two women who brought the case very well, fantastic women, um, and I'm disappointed for them. You know, they they have a, you know a child and everything, um, so it would be really good for them to be able to you know regularize their situation. But you know, the courts have to do what the courts have to do. Um, Does but... it make a difference that we have a gay man as a Taoiseach? Um. You know, I, I don't want to overstate it and say that it makes some sort of dramatic difference, but I think it is um, something we can be sort of proud of. I mean, you know, and people, you know, will think politically about Leo, what they want to think, whatever. Um, but it is, you know, I think pretty incredible that in this country, somebody who was openly gay was able to become a Taoiseach. That, was, that would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago, you know, I think. And that yeah. nobody cares. People either like him or don't like him because of his political positions. But the fact that he's gay or not doesn't bother anybody. I have a lot of close friends and valued friends that are gay Mm. guys. And one of the things that struck me, and you may say, Ivan, this is an aberration. It's not. I notice, you know, like if you had a a room of people and there was four Wexford people, they'd be pro-Wexford. If you had a group of bricklayers, they'd be (sighs) pro-bricklayers. I find that a lot of gay guys are actually quite negative about other gay guys. Is that just completely out of left? They can sometimes be bitchy and catty, you know, work colleagues and so on. They yeah. don't get out. Why is it? A, is that true? And B, why is it so? Well, I think it's a broad generalisation. It might say more about is it your friends are than... Yeah, exactly. But, but no, I think there is some truth in it because, and, and I hate to sort Cause of Because it's about like, Leo as well, really, where I'm yeah, going with that, yeah. yeah and, and I do sort of hate to sort of, you know, go back, but, but I do think there's two reasons about that. One is, 
that even the most sort of out gay person harbors these little stereotypical things that they've been brought to believe. And so, so I'm always given out to other gays that I know when they say dismissively say, oh, the gay scene can be so bitchy. And I'm like, no, it's exactly the same as any other scene. You know, you're just, you know, that's your perception of it. So that is something. I do think that I do gays, think it's a little I, bitchy. I think it's true. Yeah, okay, no, I think, okay. And then also, there's also, especially something like Leo, you know, there are so few still, you know, big out gays who are, you know, front and center and everything that we kind of want the gay that's there to be the perfect gay. And it annoys us when it's one that we don't, you know, fully, you know, agree with. So, you know, every gay wants, you know, if, the, if you said, oh, there's going to be a gay, you know, Taoiseach, they want it to be exactly the right gay Taoiseach. And it annoys them if it's not the one that they think is the right one. You know what I mean? Left to center or whatever it yeah, might be. Because, yeah, because, yeah. We, because there aren't that yeah. many still, you know, yeah. gays yes. representing the gay community. Right. And so we're sort of afraid that, oh, everyone will now think that all gays think like this. It's that usual thing. We, you know, if there was more gays in, in politics, we wouldn't care so much about this particular one. What of uh, Rory O'Neill, Panty Bliss's future? Isn't it time you got a new act? I mean, like, for God's sake. I mean, it's the same same old choice every time. Uh, That's number one. And number two, what about Panty for the Park? Um, Well, listen, I am as surprised as anybody that I'm still, you know, that Panty is still out there, you know, hoofing the boards after all these years. But, you know, it's the only thing I know how to do. You know, it's something I'm not qualified to do anything else, really. And, um, but and, a new and, act. Can you do a variation well, of see, it? Well, see, I would, you know, be give a bit her a... more butch or something. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I mean, like, she, she is me. You know, there's really there's no difference between me and Panty. She's just a, a you know, a better looking version. And the thing is, of course, is, you know, all these projects come along that are different and interesting and fun. So, like, for example, like, at the moment, I'm writing a TV show that's in development with Sky Atlantic. And I've never written a TV show before. So... You know, it's a it's about pan, it's a panty TV show thing. So that is interesting. And what is it a sitcom or is it? <laughs> Our pitch is it's like um, Cheers meets Queer as Folk meets Twin Peaks. That'll need <laughs> yeah. that'll need BAI funding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so that's one one project. What about politics? The park? Or no, no. I people often say that to me about the politics thing. You know. I think anybody with a big mouth gets asked if they get into politics. No, I'd be a terrible politician. I'm awful at compromising and I'm awful at photocopying and all that stuff. Well, we wish you every continued success. I was speaking to a mutual friend, Bill Hughes, and I said, what will I ask him? And he said, Panty maintains she is a giant cartoon woman. Is it Betty Boop or Jessica Rabbit? Drunk Jessica Rabbit. (laughs) <laughs> on that note Rory O'Neill Panty Bliss whatever you call yourself thank you for being my Thanks, special Simon. guest on Yates on Sunday and we wish you every continued success thank you Yates on Sunday brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy proud to power businesses all over Ireland energy at work for you 